0: So I wanted to say a little bit about um, what the book is about before I read. And uh, it's basically about, it's about a woman named Alice. She's like a freelance video editor with a day job she's not crazy about. And she decides to make a pro- what she calls a project about um, this artist um, who, whose material is time. And when I've talked to people about this real life project I was doing, which is this book, uh, I would often get asked, um, once I kind of explained who he was, like, is this person real? And <laughs> I think part of, the, part of the reaction is because the works are so um, kind of unbelievable. Like, did somebody really do this? Um, put in this much commitment to a performance that at the time very few people saw. And I think the other reason, as... Um, I'll talk about a little when I start reading, is just, you know, he was like a, this was the 80s in New York, and he was a pretty marginal figure at the time. He's still, to this day, not um, known by some, not known by others. So I'm just curious, uh, who has seen this or recognized this artist? Okay. Oh, great. That's gratifying. Okay. So um, apart from this project which is about the artist. The other thing that you need to know is that um, uh, Alice's father, who is called the father in the book, is uh, a Vietnam vet who's kind of sliding into dementia. So the book is about sort of the uses of time and sort of forms of labor, which sounds very not novelistic. <laughs> but, uh, so I'm gonna read two sections, um, one of which kind of sets up things, and then the next one I'm going to leap ahead into the book and read a section about the father. Ah, he stopped. What are you up to these days, a friend might ask. I'm working on a project, Alice would say. The real answer is the project doesn't exist, but calling it a project makes it a thing. What's the project about? The the project is about an artist, says Alice, the artist. Most people Alice talks to about her project do not recognize the artist's name. She might, if the conversation persists, try describing a few of his performance works. He's the artist who locked himself in a cage for a year, who punched a clock on the hour every hour for a year, who lived outside in the streets of New York City for a year without going into any buildings. Sometimes in response, there might be a nod of recognition. More often than not, their faces are blank as hard-boiled eggs. You could say the artist's performance works, his extreme acts of physical and mental endurance, are the heavyweights of projects, the kaiju of projects. A lazy twitch from the tail of one of his projects could level a metropolis of lesser projects. Yet for most of his career, he remained an underground figure for all the usual reasons. He didn't become famous the way other artists synonymous with the downtown art scene of the 1980s became famous. Basquiat, Herring, Sherman, Schnabel. He didn't share a booth with Warhol at Max's Kansas City. He didn't do lines in the unisex restroom at the Mud Club. He was in and of the margins, one of a loose community of artists who made up the alternative to the alternative art scene. Very few people had actually witnessed any of his performances, but the truth was you didn't need to. You could be standing on a tenement rooftop at a party listening to a stranger describe in an incredulous conspiratorial tone what the artist had done and forget about him for years willing to have a casual mention uncover the memory like the sound of a mountain. The artist Tim Etchells has described his first encounter with the artist's work. This was at a cinema in Sheffield in 2001. By then the artist had driven himself further underground with a series of hermetic, bewildering performance pieces that resulted in his disappearance from the art world altogether. A year before the talk he gave at Sheffield, the artist had emerged briefly after more than a decade of silence to announce that he wouldn't be making art anymore. The talk that Etchell saw was about the artist's body of work, six performances in all, before his self-imposed exile. The artist explained that after spending a year confined in a cage that he'd built in his downtown loft, he embarked on his next project in April 1980. Every hour on the hour for an entire year, he punched a time clock. He clicked through a slideshow, snapshots of himself as a much younger man, standing in the same spot with the same slightly doleful yet resolute look on his face. This is day 53. This is day 54. This is from day 55. In the dim illumination of the theater, the artist stood very straight. His tone was impassive. He offered no interpretation, no betrayal of feeling. From his seat in the audience, Etchels felt sunk. He felt as though a hole had opened up beneath him. The hole unnerved him because it also felt familiar. It was not a new hole, but one he realized that had been there all along. The artist's work had made it visible. I was silenced by what I saw, Etchels wrote. I think I was frightened. Was what he was seeing art or pathology? Etchels wasn't sure. The artist's performance pieces were ephemeral, vanished acts, yet they were freighted too with the labor of their making, the days advancing drop by drop, one barely distinguishable from the last, into the black well of the hole. This is a project about looking down into that hole. So, one of the funny anecdotes I came across in writing this that i didn't include in the book was that he had when he was making this piece he had a dental appoint he had a dental procedure that he needed to do, and he would like go to the <laughs> go to the dentist and then sit in the chair and before it was done, he'd like have to take off because he had to go home and punch the clock. <laughs> it was very intense, <laughs> and he slept through as you would imagine he did sleep through a bunch of them. I can only imagine what was going on in his head when to be that (coughs) sleep-deprived. So I'm going to jump ahead and read another section um, about midway through the book. The father in the book is like starting to go through a series of institutional settings based on his um, decline. And this chapter is called Television. The father had refused to eat his breakfast, but he did take a sip of vanilla flavored insure. That was the report from the morning nurse when Alice arrived at the skilled nursing facility, which was tucked away in a cul de sac called Solos Place, part of a sprawling archipelago of hospitals, dialysis, and radiology imaging centers, and other facilities for the sick and dying floated in a sea of manicured grass and parking lots. Alice took a deep breath before walking into the father's room. He was lying in bed, tears leaking from his eyes. He turned his head when she walked in and told her he wanted to kill himself. What is it that he had to do to make that happen? She assured him that he was scheduled to leave this place in a week or two. She and Amy, their sister, had been trying to find a suitable place for him to live. Then she broke the news that he wouldn't be returning to his old residential care home. Kenny and his wife were only equipped to handle people who could walk and go to the bathroom on their own. The father listened quietly. He stopped crying. The television was positioned at a poor angle from his bed. Alice dragged the TV in the low heavy dresser it sat on a few feet so that he could watch more easily. Dirty Harry was playing on the movie channel. She distracted the father with Clint Eastwood trivia, which seemed to cheer him up. They talked about 44 Magnum guns. The father said he was once a pretty decent one handed shooter of the Magnum he owned, but the recoil was a bitch, and he prob- was probably responsible for permanently messing up his shoulder. He explained how newer guns are made with gas gauge releases that reduce the shock of the recoil. Another topic of conversation, what movies have great brain-dead endings? Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, Thunderball. The father's face lit up with recognition at each. This felt familiar. This felt good. All those nights when her mother was studying at the campus computer lab or waitressing, the father would make Jiffy Pop and they would watch old movies on TV, spaghetti westerns, Marx Brothers, those weird orangutan movies with Clint Eastwood, even the John Wayne war flicks that bored her. The father had a knack for finding small pleasures in life and for wasting time. Some of the best times she's wasted, Alice thought, had been in the company of the father. You can't waste time with someone for whom it doesn't come naturally, if there was an art to it, Wasting time was not something Alice's mother did well or could abide by. She was always after some measure of self-improvement, calisthenics and Tai Chi for heart health, puzzles and games to strengthen her mind. Whether this was something innate in her personality or immigrant imperative was hard to say. Alice was hardly immune to its pull. She sometimes wondered if projects were an antidote to wasting time an elaborate manifestation of it, or both. Silence fell over the room. She began flipping through the TV channels. It had been so long since she'd watched actual television that she found the rhythm and randomness of it beguiling. Then something weird happened. On one channel, Shelley Winters was swimming underwater and heroically lifting a door off Jean Hackman's trapped leg in the Poseidon adventure. Click. On another channel, Shelley Winters was guest-starring on an episode of Roseanne, playing the family's brash, wisecracking grandma in a trucker hat. Watching television is like memory. Old shows and movies pop up at random, and you are thrust into them midstream. Click. Everything gets scrambled, One minute, it's a life and death hospital scene. In another, you're dropped into a truck stop diner with a laugh track. In between a jingle for chewing gum, a talking lizard shilling car insurance. Channel surfing is like riding the choppy waves of the past and present, which is not unlike grief, Alice would learn. Grief is like watching television. Thank you.